This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Continuing with our series, Messiah in Isaiah, Johnny kicked us off excellently last week in encouraging us to say, God has made us holy through Jesus, and we can respond by saying, well, here I am, Lord, send me. And, and we, we said, we, just, we did just that. We said, great, let's respond together, and we committed ourselves to God and to one another in that purpose. And we're continuing, uh, as we will for the next couple of weeks, through Isaiah. During my time in the Air Force, I did some pretty fun stuff. I also did some pretty horrible stuff. Things that I really would uh, not wish on my worst enemy. Things that, uh, at times, genuinely made me despair to the point of wanting to give up. We were out doing a survival exercise one day, and um, we were, it was escape enemy territory and evade capture. That was the name of the game. It sounds fun, does it not? Five of us out in the bush for one week together. We were being hunted by dogs, uh, hunted by trackers, and hunted by helicopters. Don't get caught. We had to try to do most of our movement in total darkness at night time to avoid being spotted. And you're fumbling around, you're stubbing your toe, you're tripping over things, you're going in the wrong direction. It is a debacle. You can't make a fire because you're going to get spotted and give away your position. You're hungry, you're tired, you're thirsty because you literally have the clothes on your back for that week. The greatest enemy, however, was the dark. When nighttime fell, no matter how pretty that place was in the daytime, it became bitterly, bitterly cold. It's that kind of cold that just cuts through everything you're wearing and chills you right to the bone. Eventually, we realized the only way to survive the night is to spoon. And the only question was, are you going to be the big spoon or the little spoon? Too much information. <laughs> and you survive by trying to get on the inside of the little spooning group, the five of us. And it is terribly cold on the outside. You just hold on for dear life while you're on the outside. And when you're on the inside, when it's your turn to kind of make your way into the inside of the spooning huddle, you can sleep a little bit. It's super uncomfortable. Um, but you can survive a little bit. And the only thing that got us through those nights, five of them to be precise, was the hope of the morning. It's, it's genuinely true that the night is coldest and darkest that hour before the dawn. 
And as that tiny little sliver of sunlight broke over the horizon, it's like your spirit starts soaring and everything starts coming together and making sense again. And you feel like, okay, I can gather my senses. I can gather my body parts. So let's gather the team. Let's try and gather the courage and we can make it. We can make it. Let's get to the end point. There is coffee, there is a hot meal, and there is a shower. That feels like heaven in that moment. I promise you that. And although I suspect not many of us can say that, look, a, a hot shower and a cup of coffee and a hot meal will be the thing that is kind of my greatest need right now, all my greatest joy, I suspect that most of us are pretty sorted in, in most of those basic areas. What our great pursuits are things like joy and peace and happiness and light, things like that. I think the reason we know to pursue things of the light is because most of us, like me, maybe not in the same scenario, but most of us have been in periods of real darkness real suffering, real tough times, whether that's physically, your health, um, body just not doing what it should do, maybe it's emotionally, spiritually, someone close to you dies, maybe a health scare, your finances take a tumble, you lose your job. Sometimes it's through foolish and sinful choices that the wheel turns and our decisions come around and the consequences are dire. Maybe like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says, you are under great pressure far beyond your ability to endure so that you despaired of life itself. Maybe you're in that place of darkness and despair right now. I'm so pleased that we can open the Scriptures together and allow a piece of writing by Isaiah penned 2,700 years ago to challenge us and to stir our faith and eventually lead us to the only one who can bring light and life into any situation. So although the person of Jesus was veiled to Isaiah, he saw in part but not fully and the people of the Old Testament also, through, through his teaching and through their prophecies, they could see in part, but not fully. The Apostle John writes in the New Testament about Jesus, the bringer of light that Isaiah sees 700 years earlier. And he links very definitively these two parts of Scripture for us to relate to Jesus. It says in John 1, 4 to 9, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John, so he's speaking about the apostle, uh, sorry, the, uh, John the Baptist. He came to witness, to bear witness to the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And Father, we, we're, so, we're so grateful for your scriptures. We, 
so grateful for truth. We're so grateful for your spirit. We're grateful for one another that we can do this together as a family, together as a community, together as a town. And we live these things out. We look to you, the giver of light, the bringer of light, the one who is truth and life. And we say, oh God, instruct us. Teach us, train us, disciple us, give us strength and courage and fortitude. Draw us back to you. We want to make much of Jesus this morning. I worship him alone. Amen. Amen. So, friends, we pick up the story in Isaiah at just such a crunch point in the history of God's people. They'd lost track of who they were and why they were. They'd started as a people of the light. They started really well. They'd started in hope and in joy and in certainty, but they end up stumbling and falling and fumbling in the dark. King Saul was a deeply flawed character and an insecure man, and he was just not able to steward the power that God had given him as king of God's people. King David, uh, a man that's described as a man after God's own heart, was promised by God to always have a descendant on the throne. And he was a true worshiper, a true warrior king. But a pretty naked girl bathing on a rooftop sunk the good legacy that God had planned for him. And I'm sure that he had hoped for himself as well. But the promises that God had made to him remained in place. And as a result of David's sin, Following the generally good reign of King Solomon, things go backward for the people of Israel very quickly indeed. The large nation of Israel violently splits into two nations, and behind me is a map, and it splits into the larger nation of the kingdom of Israel to the north, and to the south, the kingdom of Judah, where uh, Jerusalem lies. And this is a massive moment in the life of the people. Within about 300 years, the king and the people of both Israel and Judah are on an unrecoverable downward spiral. The kings are pursuing riches, power, their own glory, and it leads to weakness, it leads to defeats, it leads to insecurity, and instead of pursuing the presence of God and His obedience and his glory, which would have done them much good. And God's intended outward trajectory for the people of God, the people that He had chosen, to carry His presence and His goodness to every nation, to every corner of the world, these people had turned in on themselves. They'd started looking selfishly at their own desires. And surely this could have no good ending. And this is where in around 700 B.C., God calls Isaiah. He speaks his words to the kings and the people of Judah and the southern kingdom. And we heard last week just how holy God is, how other God is. And he doesn't sit by idly as his people, the people that he loves, the people that he gave identity, identity to, the, the people whom he made descends into darkness and obscurity. We read, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? 
And God sends Isaiah to prepare the people for what is to come and for who is to come. Ba-ba-ba! We know that's Jesus. Spoiler. Isaiah 1 verse 2 to 4. Uh, Sorry, 2 to 17 with some interruptions. Let's read. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation! A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. These are strong words. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. (gasps) What is it? uh, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands out, I will hide my my ears from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to them. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This is quite a tirade. You hear just the plain lament and pain in God's voice over the direction of His beloved people. Although the kings and the people are still Jewish in culture, their practices, uh, sorry, culture and practices, there has been a drift away from the one who gave them identity and called them as kings and His people. They still go to church. They still go to temple. They still sacrifice as usual. They still come in and ate and help people, you know, help the, the equipment get from the PAC to the lower hall on a Sunday morning. They still serve on a Sunday serving team. They occasionally even give. They observe the Sabbath. They might even pray out during worship times. And they would still, if you'd ask them, say they are the people of God. But God is still rebuking them for the condition of their heart. They've become dirty and muddy. Their outward expression of faith are meaningless when their hearts have grown so far from Him. Their distance from God's heart has brought a coldness, an apathy to the things and the people that God loves. Coming from a a horse riding family, I can tell you with somewhat painful experience that if you marry into somebody or you marry somebody who is a horse fanatic, you had better start loving horses. If you do not, there is a high likelihood you will never see your spouse 
because horses suck all your energy and all your time and all your money. And you better get with them or you won't see them. And if you, if you don't love the things that your spouse then will love, you will be on a path for a very tough relationship indeed. And Israel had fallen out of love with God, and they'd fallen out of love with the things that God loved, His horses, or His people, His passions, His loves, His desires, His goodness. And it caused huge strain on their relationship. And I find these warnings of Isaiah incredibly relevant to us today. I find them relevant to me. As a man who considers myself a relatively solid follower of Christ, I look at this list that Isaiah reads out, and I think, Apple, is there a chance that you're just a poser playing the game? Is there a chance that you're just a fraud? Because I know my heart, and it is stinky and smelly at the best of times. God first is, friends, if you go through the motions of life, but your heart is not soft towards God and is not broken to the things that He loves, His church, His people, the lost, the hurting, the broken people in the world, His mission on the earth, there's a chance you could be a poser. You could be a fraud. And let's hear the warnings of Isaiah to the people of Judah. The whole point of Isaiah's message is not to somehow bring a distinction between you are the good people and you are the bad people. There is a blanket condemnation, a blanket statement. He says, you all are fumbling around in the darkness. You all are stumbling. The muddy culture you are living in has made it easy for you to drift away from God. And sadly, as we will see, it is too late to change individual lives. God has to go for a reset of the culture. We read painfully in Isaiah 8 verse 22, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's the end that we're heading towards on this trajectory. For some of us, we have moments like this where we experience these things and we feel them as we ebb and flow and drift and come closer. A few hundred years earlier, the Jewish people were God-fearing. The culture was God-fearing. The Economy was based on a godly system. The schools were godly. The universities, the workplaces, the military, the art, the music, the government, all of it was God-orientated. But fast forward a few generations, and many of the practices are still in place, but the intimacy had fallen right out of the bottom of it. Without intimacy with God and obedience when God spoke, the people of God had drifted to become just people. And the culture had muddied the clear lines between good, healthy, godly choices 
and began to normalize sinful, inward-looking, selfish ambitions. And I find this an incredibly compelling part of the story. And the challenges we face today are not new or unique. They've been faced by many generations in the past. And I, I think our story right now as a nation echoes very closely the story of God, uh, the story of the people of God at this time. In England, a couple of hundred years ago, we were a nation that had intimacy with God. Certainly on the, as a culture. But following a few generations, this God-honoring culture as a nation has drifted. And the cultural waters in which we now swim have become as dark and as muddy as the days of Isaiah. I don't know about you, but I find these things hard. It is hard to live upright lives when TV and billboards and phones and all our social media throw sexually explicit material at us non-stop. I find that hard. It is hard to prioritize being together as a family of God on a Sunday when everyone around us idolizes their own family and their own pursuits. Families are weekends away or just sleeping in. That's what the world is doing. It's hard to prioritize tithing or being generous with our finances when everything around us tells us to hoard as much as we can and use it for ourselves as much as we can. It's hard to use our time and our talents to bless our nation, to bless the people, to bless the nations when everyone around us barricades themselves in their own home and exchanges genuine relationships for Instagram fantasies. It's hard to put ourselves in discomfort for the sake of the poor, for orphans, for widows, for divorced ladies in our community, when everyone around us is doing everything they can to make their own lives as comfortable as possible. When flying a plane, particularly in a cloud, you can have, I'm going to get a little bit geeky here, you can get up to three degree rotation before your body even knows a change is taking place. So in effect, within, within 60 seconds, within one minute, you can be flying straight and level to be completely upside down in a cloud and you wouldn't even have realized it. One minute, you think you're doing well. We're living close to God. We're living in the light. And the next minute, we're upside down in chaos and in darkness. God first... I wonder, can you pick up whether there is a drift in your life? How much has the culture around us shaped us? What we hold dear? What we find our genuine hope in? The reality is that for most of us, we can't see it for ourselves. And if we do, we'd say something like, sure, we're not perfect, right? But who is? God is perfect. God is holy. 
God is righteous. And friends, when we wade through dark, muddy, cultural waters, we get dirty. And Isaiah's challenge is to ask, ask, how then can anyone be near God if this is the case? How can anyone be saved? How can anyone remain near to God if He is so holy and so perfect, but with my tiniest indiscretion, I'm displeasing Him? How can I ever get clean? How can I ever get out of the dark and into the light? Well, as for the Israelites of the southern kingdom, God loved them too much to leave them in this national drift. And so he gives Ahaz a promise that there is hope at the end of this dark tunnel. Isaiah 7, we read, And again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heavens. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you may weary my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey. That's probably yours. And he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to uh, refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the days of Ephraim was the split, north and the southern kingdoms going separately, very horrible, very violent, devastating times. He's like, guys, you've seen nothing yet when the king of Assyria comes. King Ahaz, he's fudging it again. He speaks this religious mumbo jumbo, I won't tempt the Lord my God. He's sounding all holier than thou, but he's He's forcing God's hand. Isaiah foretells that God will use the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians to discipline his people and bring about this national culture recentering that would create in them a hunger for the promised Son, who we know to be Jesus. Jesus. He's the answer. That's right, always. But the sign will be that a virgin will give birth to a son. He will not be conceived out of human will of a mother and a father, no, but God Himself will be the initiator of grace and redemption towards His people. Who do we know who was born of a virgin? Jesus. So His name will be God with us, we read. Jesus, whose actually name means God saves, didn't come to do something from afar. He came right amongst His people. God with us indeed. And He will choose good over evil. Well, Jesus is the only person born who was sinless and as such could stand in our place before a holy God. We ask, how is it possible to be in the presence of a holy God? Through Jesus. 
who stands in our place. And they will know that God still loved them and that they were still His people because of this promise and the hope of its fulfillment. However, before that day comes, Judah will become a desolate and desperate place. It's people slain, enslaved, carried off into exile. But God is no sadist, and nor is He impotent. He has a plan. And He uses the hard, painful, difficult road of the people of Judah and the people of Israel to teach them, to disciple them. They will, those who will, are currently and who will be walking in darkness will be walking in the light. The day is dawning. Isaiah goes on to tell us more about God's beacon of light and hope, the promised Son. We read in Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Ah, there's the hope on the horizon. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And the people who were broken and marginalized and oppressed will be drawn to the light. The light will come. The people will see the light. And they will say, I need rescuing. They have seen a great light. And when light comes... Darkness flees. It's not just a physical reality when we switch off the lights or we struggle to see our uh, projector because there's too much light. And when the light comes, poof, darkness goes. I mean, then we can see even less. It's just, it's just a reality in the physical, but it's a spiritual reality as well. It's the people in darkness who know they're hurting, they're broken, they're needing a savior, somebody to pull them out of the pits of despair. They'll say, that's what I want. He's the guy I need. People who think they have plenty of light are like those walking around in the daytime with a torch. It's like, yeah, no, this, this is not, means nothing to me. And they forget that in the times of darkness, how wonderful a torch would have been. And they choose to just put the torch down, carry on with life. 
No, it's those who see it, those who know their need, those who are in darkness, those who know that the light is not found in the stuff of life or in holidays or in sex or in power or in sleeping or in other stuff, but it's in Jesus who is the true light. God first, visiting friends. Are you in darkness? Are you in gloom? Are you hurting? Are you struggling? Are you tired? Well, Jesus came for people just like you, just like me. And it's people just like you who see Him for who He really is, the child who was born will be the kind of person who draws the broken and the needy to himself, those who need saving. Look around the room. This is not a group of people who've got it sorted out. <laughs> Uh-oh. This is a group of people who know they need saving every day. No longer does a culture of, of darkness or muddiness need to be the defining feature of life, need to be the major driver of life. In His death on the cross, Jesus takes all the darkness upon Himself. He takes all the shame of walking in darkness on Himself. He takes all the punishment of walking in darkness on Himself. He takes it into Himself. And again, dun, 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 as He rises from the grave, He rises in light and glory. And we are going to celebrate communion in a little while. We will celebrate the light that is in Christ as we eat and as we drink. The light that is in Him, in His body, in His blood shed for us. Where Jesus walks, where Jesus comes, darkness flees. No longer people in the darkness, but partakers of the One who is light and life. And when the light comes, He will bring the greatest joy. We don't quite get the analogy uh, of Isaiah in today's culture. But a good harvest, that is a guarantee of prosperity and health and life for me and my family. A good harvest means we will live another year. <laughs> Jesus, the light, will bring the same level of joy as that. The spoils of war and the burning of the boots and the blood-soaked uniforms are a sign that the great war is over. The great battle is won. No more dead sons. No more dead fathers. No more dead lives. No more dead works. No more power that drives us from the outside. No, from the inside. We are no longer victims of dark, oppressive powers. We are freed by the one who is light and life. Oh, the joy. 
The rod, the staff, the yoke, all are tools of vicious slave masters. For Israel, it meant a promise to a return back to Jerusalem and the cities they came from, away from slavery and oppression, away from exile, back home. And in the long term, as the rod and the staff and the yoke of oppression and punishment fell on Jesus, He endured punishment on our behalf, both from man, but more importantly, from God Himself. Punishment over sin, punishment over our dark works, punishment for our desires that are so less than perfect. The great war with our dirty lives before a holy God is over. We are clean as He is clean. It is finished. Friends, this is the kind of joy that that I experienced when lying in the dark, lying in the dust, spooning with five comrades, and I see the light dawn on the horizon. It's like, yes, life. He will be the Prince of Peace. No longer will peace be a hit and run affair. Find it here, find it there. I had it, no, now I lost it again. Chasing it here, chasing it there. No, the promised Son who is light will bring the peace of God, the shalom of God in all its fullness and all its wholeness. And people can pause for their efforts. They can pause from their hard work trying to correct ourselves when we're drifting off. We can pause from the worry, the concern, the fear of that because we're in Jesus and the peace that He brings. The light and the life is the shalom to us. To the increase of His government and peace there will be no end. There will be no end because where light goes, the dark is gone. Where the light goes, the rulership of this new king born from the line of David goes. This new king will not be like kings before. Will not be like things that we make king like in our lives. That promise light and life and joy and satisfaction. But never quite deliver. He will deliver It is an everlasting kingdom of joy and peace. And the zeal and the passion and the love and the magnificence and the holiness of God Himself will establish it and sustain it to the very end. Friends, this is good news for the weary soul. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.